In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Rich Harris about Svelte, Sapper, and his recent article, In Defense of the Modern Web. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 143. So um, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is, first of all, I have um, recently started playing with Svelte a little bit for the first time and realized that we never talked about it on the show, and I thought that would be really cool to talk about. And... um, I also think it would be cool to talk to you about kind of building modern web applications and some of uh, your opinions on that, because you have a very opinionated voice about that sort of thing on the Internet. And it's always interesting to kind of hear people's takes and how people kind of imagine us doing this sort of stuff in the future and what direction we should be pushing things in. Um, So maybe the best place to start, though, would just be talking uh, about Svelte itself and I think that'll probably lead into uh, kind of how you think people should be building stuff for the web, because I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, things there that are related. Um, so so what is like the pitch for Svelte these days after, you know, having time to refine it over the last few years? Still working on the pitch. Honestly, it's a little bit of a difficult thing to, to summarize. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've found works best is to try and... Uh, put it in the context of other projects that people are generally more familiar with. Um, So a lot of people have used React, a lot of people have used Vue, and they're used to this idea of building web applications out of self-contained components, where you have the markup for a particular piece of your UI, together with the styles that belong with that markup, and the behavior that controls how you can interact with that markup and and what it will change into in response to changes in the state of your app. Um, Svelte is, is basically like that. It's a thing that allows you to build applications um, out of components. The the big difference between Svelte and those other projects is that it primarily thinks of itself as a compiler, whereas a traditional framework will take your declaratively authored components and then sort of turn them into instructions to the browser at runtime. Svelte tries to do as much of the work as possible at build time. So you integrate it into your usual build step using Webpack or Rollup or whatever module bundler you're using, uh, and it will take the components that you've authored and and literally rewrite it as vanilla JavaScript. Um, And through that, it's able to achieve typically much better performance than a traditional framework. And because we don't need to carry around, you know, a virtual DOM diffing engine or any of the stuff that you normally expect to include, um, your application will typically be a lot smaller as well, which means that it gets to your user faster and it starts up faster. Um, the, the final major benefit of a compiler-centric design is that we have a lot more control over the authoring experience. We're not constrained by having to design components in a way that, that um, is... Um, it, like, it's, it's not... We don't have to be valid JavaScript, sure. essentially, is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And so a, a Svelte component actually isn't written into a JavaScript file. It's written into a Svelte file, which is a superset of HTML. Uh, so you're literally just writing HTML, but augmenting it with um, the JSX type curly brace JavaScript yeah. expressions that you need for it to become dynamic. And because of that, we can also include styles in the component in the same file, and they will be scoped to the markup because uh, the compiler can analyze the CSS in the context of the markup. Uh, and you can have local state, which you um, which you change just by reassigning to it, triggering re-renders in a more granular fashion than, than the typical component level yeah. updates. So it's a combination of all of those things. It's a component framework, but it's also a compiler, and it's also a library of the things that you need when you're building an application. Um, and 
you know, a, a philosophy of building web apps, I guess. Yeah, awesome. So uh, you mentioned that it doesn't have to be valid JavaScript, which I think is really interesting. And I think it's something people sort of notice pretty early when they're working um, with Svelte, with sort of some of the syntax that you use for like declaring things as reactive and, and stuff like that. One thing I'm curious about, like I don't think we need to like talk about Svelte from a total beginner's perspective or like introduce it from scratch because I'm sure there's lots of conversations on the internet about that. But I am curious about like why, um, how you make decisions, I guess, about how when to stick to something that does just look like regular javascript and and when to deviate from it and and what kind of why even make it look like javascript at all like why work within those constraints and look for like javascript features that you can sort of like abuse for other purposes and stuff like that (laughs) if it doesn't need to be javascript at all in the first place also i i should i should clarify what i mean by um not valid javascript What, what i'm saying is that you know, normally, if you're writing a React component, for example, then um, your React component, after it's after the JSX has been compiled away to the the JavaScript equivalent, which is like it, JSX is essentially syntactic sugar. Um, yeah. w- what you're left with has to be valid JavaScript, and that introduces constraints on how you um, how you author your components. Yeah. What it basically means is that you have to add a ton of boilerplate, um, and when you're declaring state, you, you know, you have to use hooks which uh, they just add a lot of visual weight to, um, to to the declaration of state within your component compared to just declaring a variable that automatically becomes reactive. Um, in a Svelte component, the contents of your script tag, that does need to be valid JavaScript. With a caveat, um, we have an announcement <laughs> on this front coming pretty soon. Um, it does have to be valid JavaScript syntactically, but semantically, we make two changes to how that JavaScript is interpreted. Well, three changes to how that JavaScript is interpreted. Um, the first change is that, as I mentioned, you update state in a component by assigning to it. Um, so, for example, you know, if if you're doing the sort of demo count clicker component where you have a button that increments a count, then you would declare that with let count equals zero, and then your event handler would just be count plus equals one. Yeah. And that's all you need to do to tell Svelte that that component needs to re-render. So it's, it's the lightest possible, um, like theoretically the lightest possible way that you could, um, that you could uh, make that state change happen. Um, and we do that by instrumenting every assignment to local state that is declared at the top level of your component. So that count plus equals one uh, statement, that becomes, uh, you know, Inside it becomes dollar dollar invalidate parentheses sure. zero comma count plus equals one. Uh, like the specifics of exactly what it's instrumenting it as don't matter, but the point is that the compiler is just adding a little bit of a code hint that that allows the compiler to know when it needs to, or allows the the scheduler rather to know when it needs to re-render a component. Yeah. The other two changes are so the the one that I think you were alluding to just then is we have a thing called reactive declarations. Yeah. Which is to say that you, know, you might have. Uh, a, a piece of state that is derived from other pieces of state. Um, so whereas in React you might have like const and then inside the array brackets a comma set a equals u state one const brackets c, uh, b comma set b equals u state two, and then you might have const c equals use memo, and then you would pass in a function that returns a plus b and then passes those values as dependencies to, to the thing at the end. 
Uh, what we really want to be able to do is, you know, let A equals one, let B equals two, let C equals A plus B. Yeah. But because that code executes when the component is initialized, that value of C will always be um, what the value of A plus yeah, B was at just, the beginning of the component's life cycle. And that's it, yeah. Yeah, and so it's very convenient when you're when you're building a component to be able to say, I want this value C to always be equal to the value of A plus B. Um, and there are some sort of experimental programming language approaches to, to this. Like, there's a blog post that I really like um, by a, a guy called Paul Stavell. Um, I think it's called "What Is Reactive Programming," and and, and it's really fun. It's it's, it's describing these. Um, these programmers in like some far off year looking at how we used to write code and, and being horrified at the fact that you would need to keep keep saying C equals A plus B in order for it to, to stay in, in in sync. And so he introduced this thing called the destiny operator. So it's C destiny A plus B. And then those things would be forever bound. Oh, that's cool. Um, and so we we really like that idea. So we implemented it in Svelte components. And the, the way that we do it is by hijacking a, a piece of syntax called the label operator which doesn't actually have a use in that context so it's completely free for us for us to to take it and use it it's normally used in the context of for loops and while loops and, and like we don't really need to get into that but it's it's like this just this really esoteric piece of javascript that most people don't even know about and we've repurposed it to use it for that um for for that uh, for that case so we would say dollar colon c equals a plus b and then the value of c is forever bound to the value of a plus b yeah the final way in which we um, we play fast and loose with JavaScript is that when you have a component that accepts some input from some parent component, so you know in your parent component you might have angle brackets foo answer equals forty two pass that answer equals forty two down as a prop. The foo component needs to be able to say to the outside world um, answer is. Uh, a, it's not private state, it's something that you can set from the outside, and that's how components pass data to each other. Yeah. Um, and so you can't just do let answer equals whatever. You need to have some way of annotating that as an externally writable property. And the way that we do that is by using the export keyword, because mm -hmm. in the context of a component, it, it doesn't mean anything else. It yeah. can't mean anything else. Yeah. So um, they're, they're fairly kind of, when you first see them, they're a little bit controversial. They're like, wait, what? Th that? That doesn't make any sense. You can't just change the rules of JavaScript like that. But once people start using it and um, and, and understanding why we've made those choices, it very quickly becomes second nature. And it just allows you to build really expressive components with so little boilerplate that if you're coming from some other frameworks, like a lot of people find that really refreshing. Yeah. Are there any like philosophical reasons for why you would choose to always like find some JavaScript kind of syntax to hang kind of these special behaviors onto instead of just deciding we're going to invent some syntax because we're going to compile it down anyways. Like I could see the practical concerns are like, well, by doing it this way, we can use Babel to parse the AST and we don't have to write like our own parser or, you know what I mean? Like there's lots of existing tooling you can leverage in, in that way. But from a pure philosophical point of view, um, what's the argument for not just like introducing completely made up syntax to support like some of these new ideas? There isn't one. It's an entirely pragmatic consideration. You know, we're a fairly small team. Um, it's Svelte is a is like the 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 total like the 
it, it's very open source. It's yeah, very community yeah. driven. Like cool. everyone who contributes to it does so voluntarily in their free time. We don't have any full time developers working on it. So like when you start introducing things that require you to build out all this extra infrastructure, like you said, like we, we use Acorn to parse our JavaScript, but like you also need to have things like linters and type checkers and yeah, like, syntax, syntax highlighting, highlighting editor, yeah. like all <laughs> of this stuff, it becomes like all of a sudden just the, the combinatorial explosion of all of these things that you need to now think about because you've, you've veered off the rails um, is far bigger than, than, than we can realistically take on. So we, yeah. we just decided early on, we're going to hold ourselves to a constraint that everything inside the components script block is going to be syntactically valid JavaScript because now we can leverage the, the thousands and thousands of hours of work that have gone into building this ecosystem of incredible tooling. Yeah, very cool. So one thing that I have always been curious about with Svelte, but because I haven't played with it much other than uh, a little experiment that I did re recently, I don't have a you know, I haven't formed like my own conclusion on it is I would expect that because you are sort of uh, limited to this kind of template approach that sometimes you'd run into situations where it feels like, wow, I wish I had a render function here. You know what I mean? Like in view, for example, we kind of have both 99% of things are done with like templates and everything, but you have this like escape hatch um, to render functions. Is that... Am I right that like you can't do that in Svelte? And what are the, and and what's sort of your stance on that? You know what I mean? Like, what's like your your response to that? Is it just not actually a problem in practice? Like, do you have alternate solutions for those sorts of problems? Yeah, I think you basically preempted my answer. So you're right that we we don't have render functions. the The way that Svelte works is. Um, like because we have a template language, and I know a lot of people get scared when you say template language, but it's not like you know the template languages of your where sure it's, like, it's HTML. You have like, <laughs> like, oh, these are logicalist templates. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, okay, great, but I need logic. I'm building a program. Um, it's not like that. It's 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 a very flexible and fully featured template language. Um, but because it is a template language, Svelte is able to do a lot more of the work at build time than it otherwise would be able to because it doesn't have to account for like every conceivable possibility because like you know if you have render functions then you, you just kind of need to run that function to find out what it does and, and you can't do any of the work ahead of time in that context oh you can do some work that like you can hoist out static nodes and like things like that but fundamentally templates give you a lot more flexibility it's slightly paradoxical it's the rule of least power um uh that that, that, that's sort of manifesting itself there um, in the same way that you can use JSON in a lot more places that you can use JavaScript because JSON is a less powerful language and in that, you know, paradoxically makes JSON more flexible. Um, the template languages in frameworks are, are kind of like that. And a really tangible example of how that, um, how that works is that Svelte server-side rendering, when you compile a Svelte component to a server-side rendering component as opposed to one that you mount in the DOM, then it just compiles it to a function that concatenates a string, like an old-fashioned templating language. And that is just blindingly fast. It's so much faster than server-side rendering that involves constructing your component tree and then serializing the tree to a, to a string. And so because of that, like if you're using Svelte server-side rendering, then your server costs will be yeah. lower, for example. Am I right so that, that is like a... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no. go ahead. I was going to say that's interesting to think about, like the difference between like compiling it for server side versus um, for the client, and the fact that you even have like that ability to do that. Because I, could, I imagine then that, like the the code path for 
doing something server side was felt is just like take the script block just like evaluate it once like stick a bunch of stuff in the template and concatenate the string and like you're done you know um that's pretty much exactly it sounds super simple compared to uh what happens everywhere else yeah Yeah. but you're right it does have this theoretical drawback that because you don't have a render function you you have to be able to somehow express everything within the template language and uh there are some some theoretical downsides to that um my experience of building svelte apps the last four years has been that they are just that they're theoretical downsides mm-hmm. um i i can't remember a situation where i haven't been able to do something in svelte because i didn't have a render function what about um, a situation where like you want someone to be able to pass in like a tag name to use for a component through a prop what's like the svelte answer to that so okay so that that is um, that is a good example of something where it would be easier if we could do that. And we've talked about having a special tag that would allow you to do just that because mm-hmm. it, it's come up once or twice. Um, but because you have, uh, you know, you have a lot of escape hatches and you can, uh, you can vary the, the, like you can use if blocks basically if you have, like, you're not sure if it's going to be, an H1, an H2, an H3, yeah. an H4, an So H5, as long as you have like kind then, of a limited uh, set of yeah. allowed options, you can But, but actually, the, the cases where you have no idea what tag someone is going to pass in, Pretty that, rare. that is yeah. just not a situation that most people encounter when they're building applications. So it's, it is it is one of those things like, oh, how do you do this? And the answer is, well, it's that, that case is a little bit sticky. Um, you might need to use one of the escape hatches but because it's something that you almost never encounter, like the the problems that that causes are just so vastly outweighed by the productivity gains that you have from being able to write um, using Svelte's more concise style than um, than people are used to. Yeah, yeah. And that that, that writing less code, by the way, this is so. This is like a little crusade that I've been on for for a while. Is tr- trying to get people to think about writing less code not as a uh, like a productivity benefit. It's not like saving your fingers from repetitive strain injury, although it is doing that. It's it's allowing you to build more stable, robust applications. There's um, you know there's research that's that's been done that shows that the the number of bugs in a system grows super linearly with the size of the code base. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's something that holds true across different languages. So it's not like you know, some languages have a higher bug density than others. It's like there is just an amount of bugs that you can expect to experience with a code base of a particular size. And so if you have a way of authoring components that results in, you know, two thirds of the amount of code than if you had authored it using a different framework, then you can expect to have significantly fewer bugs. And that's that's just a fact. Yeah, I think that definitely makes a lot of sense and definitely rings true uh, with my experience for sure. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You, you don't find that like, from my experience with the view, because that's definitely where most of my like uh, experiences with component level frameworks, it feels like um, the more and more, the closer your code gets to trying to be like library code, like cr- writing a, a view library that you release to s- the public, I feel like the closer you're trying to get to doing something general generic is where you end up needing like the render function stuff, in my experience anyways. The more general purpose i'm trying to make something the more likely it ends up being that i i don't end up um, being able to use templates for things 
but I'm sure Svelte has like a very rich ecosystem of um, tooling and people seem to be able to pull it off. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a community site um, with, you know, a whole array of component uh, libraries and, uh, you know, routing libraries and, other kinds of resources. The address is, is svelte-community.netlify.app. Um, yeah. And there's just a, a, a ton of stuff on there. Cool. Um, and, you know, we, we're just not hearing from people that they're trying to build a certain thing and and being unable to do so yeah. because of templates, by and large. Very cool. So I think maybe, like, the next interesting thing to get into would just be kind of talking about, um, like, obviously you're a fan of Svelte, <laughs> I would expect. Um, okay. And I'm sure there's some alignment uh, there in terms of how you kind of see how we should be building things um, for the web. And it'd be, I'd be interested to like talk a little bit about that because it's a topic that uh, I'm really interested in. So we kind of talked very briefly before kind of we started recording the call. Um, my my go-to approach still for building stuff on the internet is if it needs to be like dynamic, it needs to talk to a database, it needs to have users and stuff, I'm using like Laravel usually, which is like Rails for, for PHP, you know? And I'm usually still doing a bunch of server-side rendering with like not server-side rendering the way we talk about server-side rendering in 2020, you know, where it's like server rendering an, a client-side bundle, but literally just like returning raw html from the server sprinkling in some like view or a react or vanilla javascript or whatever and but i've i've always paid pretty close attention to sort of the modern kind of i don't know what word people use these days we used to call them spas but i think that term is starting to sort of fall out of favor a little bit or is not really accurate anymore for the way people kind of think about building these sort of fat client apps maybe is the better way to think about it but even then everyone's trying to make these fat clients as thin as possible so maybe that's not the, <laughs> the word for it anymore either um but i'd be interesting to kind of I, I mean i read you put out a blog post a little while ago called uh, in defense of uh, the modern web which that's the sort of stuff that really gets me excited because as someone who still does things like the quote-unquote old way i still have a lot of optimism about a future where like we can just focus on using these kind of front end uh, focused tools because that's personally where I have the most fun anyways. And I want to believe that like, that's where the tool chain is going to go. And that's, and that's where we can build stuff, but I still haven't taken sort of um, the dive into it. So when, when something comes out like that, it gets me excited to read it and, you know, kind of fuel my optimism for the future. So I'd be curious to kind of talk to you about, where you think kind of things are going and we can sort of dig deep into into pieces of it as we go but like something that's interesting to me is like you work for the new york times right mm -hmm. which if if you were just like to look at, it at like the surface you would think without digging deep into it and like really analyzing every page on like the new york times website you could easily see how someone would think well yep that's like a website that's like a perfect example of something we could have built with like the 1995 web, you know what I mean? Documents that are served over the wire with HTML. Um, but then when you go and look at it deeply and you look at some of the experiences that are pre present on like the New York times uh, website, it's really not like a document anymore. Like there's a lot of really interesting things going on there. So um, all that to say, I guess, it seems like even like the examples that we think of as like the prototypical examples of just a document driven web are kind of starting to disappear. Um, and maybe that's just an interesting 
place to start this conversation from. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I cringe when I see people um, say the web is for documents, not apps. Mm-hmm. Um, as if you as if you can clearly delineate those two things in the first place. Like you obviously cannot clearly delineate those two things. You can come up with a million counter examples of things that sort of straddle between you, you know content and interaction if you want to sort of frame it that way. Yeah. Um, and you know, I also just think it's it's not true. I mean, the web has some has a whole lot of very successful applications and if you want to include everything that's built on electrons since those are built with web technologies then like the web is by far the world's biggest application distribution platform yeah um so the idea that it's it's this thing that it was always supposed to be for documents and then we just sort of made a terrible category mistake of trying to shove applications onto it um i i just i just i just don't see that like yes it originally started as a there's a fork of SGML that was used for academics to share papers with each other, but it's that's not what it is anymore. Um, and so, you know, I I think that those divisions are arbitrary and unhelpful when it comes to thinking about how we should be building the modern web. Yeah. So I don't know like where to even start because I don't even know like every question that I even I even have about this, but like. <laughs> Do you think there's like, do you believe in any sort of like universal approach to application development for the web? I guess like, do you think there's always going to be sites that make more sense to be built in this way and not some sites that make more sense to be built in this way? Or should we be trying to like find some paradigm that kind of lets everyone do what they want to do, you know, like, um, I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Like, that's like, it it's, does, a, it's yeah. a question that rolls around in my head a lot. So I, I had to be careful about about how I answer this because, um, like a, any any claim to have found the the answer, like the universal uh, theory of, of everything on the web, is you know is going to look silly in a couple of years for sure. Um, yeah, and you know when when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and my hammer is svelte. Uh, but that being said. Like when I look at some of the arguments, and, and perhaps we should like cover some of this ground before we get into this, but so when I look at some of the arguments for not using a modern web stack for building web applications, but rather using you know more traditional solutions like Rails and Laravel, um, I, I often think that they're not so much attacking the, like, the, the sort of core fundamental ideas of, of the modern web. They're attacking what we have in practice today, which is you know, slightly bloated um, sure. front-end code bases and, you know, giant node modules and, like, a whole lot of, you know, you've got to string everything together, you've got to write a 200-line webpack config and, like, no uh, major front-end framework really has an opinion about, like, the data layer and authentication and stuff like that. So, like, you have to string all these things together yeah. yourself and so people look at that mess. And it's like, well, I, I want nothing to do with that. And over here, I, I can just spin up a Rails app and uh, and I can be instantly productive. And there are, there are really good ways that I can deploy that and and get users like in a day. Whereas, you know, th- this modern web, like it seems like a lot more work to me. Yeah. And yeah, so, so I, I, yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about why like that isn't uh, the right opinion to have, I guess, in, in your 
opinion like wh- where what are you sacrificing if you if you make that uh choice you know well so the what it comes down to for me is this there is no other platform where you're expected to write the logic for your initial view using a completely different set of languages and technologies from the logic that you use to write subsequent updates right if yeah. you're building an iOS app or an Android app like you're not you're not you don't have these like two completely separate halves of your application you just build the whole thing in in a single unified stack um, and the web is you know it is unique it has some unique constraints but that doesn't to me say that it makes sense to have one app for generating some HTML and then another app for doing things with that HTML in, in the client because when you have that like you you very often end up having separate teams managing that and so if you need to add a new feature then it's not like one team of developers doing that it's two teams that need to have meetings and start need to start negotiating for each other's time and like all of these things so there's like there's a this very real sort of cost that comes from bifurcating your code base like that the promise of the modern web is that you can build everything in like like in, in a single stack and like ideally the work will happen on the server if it's appropriate for it to happen on the server it'll happen in the client if it's appropriate for it to happen in the client um, and that's kind of what we're slowly inching towards is a world where you can build rich complete applications with a single stack with a single team and the work happens where it's most appropriate yeah. and and when we're getting there we're we're actually getting there but okay. we're just not there quite yet so i have i have two kind of directions i want to go on that, that i think would be interesting conversations like one is that I think even like people like DHH probably like completely agree with you, right? But they kind of see it. They he would say that that doesn't mean that writing everything in JavaScript is like the only way to achieve that. Like with like Hey and recent Basecamp stuff, I know like they're trying really hard to basically write as little JavaScript as possible and do everything on the server. And the server is the source of truth for even like you open your little profile drop down, like that comes from the server. Whereas you know that's not what would happen if we were building something as, a, as an SPA. So I think like, I think most people probably agree that having to write two code bases in two languages with two teams with two different sets of specialties is uh, like a death sentence for the productivity. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. and, but then the other thing I think is like, what do you think killed or not killed, I guess, but but why do you think things like Meteor like weren't successful at like trying to do this, or or is it just because it's just like that's that's our first attempt, and um, we have to keep trying until we kind of get there. We learn and we move, we try again, learn more, try again. You know, Meteor was far ahead of its time. Uh, you know, they they started building Meteor um, like it, it was actually an offshoot of a product that they were trying to build. It's like in order to build a product, they they started building a homegrown framework and then they realized that the front the framework was just like a much bigger potential upside than the product that they were building. So they they pivoted. Um, but this was this was years ago. This was like at the start of the last decade when you, you know an NPM wasn't yet really a thing and we didn't have anything like the ecosystem that we, we have now. There's no such thing as React. So, yeah. you know, it, it made sense for them to build their own view layer. And so it was this very sort of insular project for many years. And the rest of the of, of the web, as MB, NPM became a thing and React became a thing, 
they started solving um, problems that Meteor had been solving. But because there were so many more people, because like the distributed nature of the community, there were so many more people working on these problems that Meteor just could, never could keep up. Yeah, and so I, I think it's in a much better place now. But you know, the the, the community has kind of moved on from, from like it. It sort of has a. Um, you know, there are a lot of very happy Meteor users still, but uh, it, it's not on anyone's sort of list of hot new sure. technological trends to watch, which, which is, is kind of a shame. Um, I don't think that invalidates the idea at all of what Meteor was doing. Um, a lot of times this, this happens in, in the tech world. Things will be ahead of their time and then it just, it just takes a minute before, yeah. before the landscape is ready. Yeah, I think that makes sense for sure. What is what do you think about like the the whole discussion around like well, if we want to write everything in one language, how can we write that do it all in Ruby instead of JavaScript? Do you know what I mean? Like what what is what makes that like a a non-starter for you, I guess? Uh so in in a world where you can compile Ruby to Wasm and Wasm can not not uh, even that, but just like DOM, what if we build this like set of JavaScript sense. primitives that let us kind of like interact with the core things that we need to do, like opening and closing things or doing whatever. But like all we're doing is like consuming that from the server, annotating things so that like things work, but that code base basically doesn't get touched as much. You know what I mean? Almost like like Phoenix Live View is trying to solve like the same sort of problem in a lot of ways and stuff like that. I, I think Live View is a fascinating project, and I, I haven't, I haven't uh, used it myself. I've sort of looked at it jealously from afar. <laughs> um, so, for, for anyone who isn't familiar, like Live View is this thing that you know you, you write your you write your entire application as a server application, and then it is sort of has a JavaScript client that the server sends diffs to, and then the the client just receives those and applies them to, to the page. Um, and you don't write any JavaScript at all. And, and I think that is a truly fascinating idea for a certain class of application. Um, I don't think it's great for anything that involves um, a, lot of, a lot of JavaScript. Uh, sorry, a, a lot of animation. Yeah. Um, like or anything like that. Complex because, page transitions and... Yeah. Because, like anything that, where there are updates that happen at 60 frames per second that are not driven by CSS animations yeah. or whatever. Well, there is like, there's like a flappy bird with built with live view that you can actually use. There, there is, like, there is. feels pretty good considering. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you start to introduce considerations around latency that for, at least for your users that are nowhere near the server. Yeah, yep. Like that, that becomes It's that not becomes possible. It's just physically impossible for it to be uh, as good as something running on the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the other side of it is like not a lot of people, um, not a lot of people know how to write a live view app, whereas JavaScript is the most popular programming language in the world. So yeah. like if, if you want to democratize the act of creating the web, then I think JavaScript is the place to invest. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate a bit here. I think it makes the conversation more interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, th th there, but there is a lot of this, right? I, a lot of people are raising these perfectly valid and, and good questions. Um, and, you know, this, this kind of came to a head a, a little bit recently um, for me when, when Hey got launched. So the reason that we're, that we're having this conversation right now is because you saw a tweet thread that I did the other day about, um, about Hey.com, which is, 
you know, a new email service from, from Basecamp. And one that I'm really enthusiastic about, like I'm a paying, hey customer, I paid my $99. Um, and I, I love almost everything about, hey, I love the product philosophy. I love the fact that it turns email into a thing that belongs to the, the recipient as opposed to the sender. Um, like I control who gets to email me. Um, it blocks tracking pixels. Um, all of these things like has a really nice um, way of thinking about the different types of emails that you get. Like some emails are things that you want to reply to. Some emails are just newsletters that you can look at when you get a free minute. Some emails are things like receipts. And so those are separate parts of the app with a separate UI. And, and I love all of that. And, uh, you know, I have a ton of respect for DHH, who is the, the co-founder of Basecamp and, and the sort of public face of, of this application, is also the creator of Rails. And so I, I get very nervous about suggesting that, that, that they may have, you know, done anything wrong. And I'm actually not suggesting that. Like, they've built a, a very popular and successful product and... I'm certainly not going to sit here and suggest that that they should have done it a different way. But a lot of people out there in the community are saying, well, this is probably how we should be building apps now. Because look, look at this Lighthouse score. Look how little JavaScript there is on the page. Like this is, uh, this is the, the, the future of, of building web apps is, um, is to go back to how we were doing things before all of this modern web nonsense started and I think that's a dangerous line of thought and I really wanted to push back against it and I used the example of um, of a particular piece of the hey user experience that I think is really quite lacking in 2020 um, which is that if you're in the main page where you have your inbox uh, mm -hmm. the important box inbox and you scroll down because you get a lot of emails like I do like you scroll down you want to open a specific one and then you open the email it will Go to the server, fetch the HTML for that email, and then show it on your screen. And then if you go back, it won't take you to where you were in the inbox. It will take you back to the top of the page, and you'll have yeah. the initial 30 emails before it started the infinite loading process. Yeah. And so like, I've, I've just lost my place in the application. And that is not something that I expect to happen in a, in a modern web app. And that's the most egregious example, but you know, th there, are, there are some others. Like Just generally navigating around, hey, doesn't feel... Feels like a website and like, slick. It yeah. feels like a website, right? Yeah. And it's fine. Like it's not a bad user experience, but it's not something to aspire to. It's yeah. it's just like it's it's fine. And so when I I tweeted, um, I tweeted a little thread out about this, expecting to get excoriated because it's Twitter and everyone's looking for a fight. But actually, uh, like a ton of people were like, yeah, I, I've noticed that too. It kind of feels a little sluggish, and particularly people in places like Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Um, you know where they're they're a long way from wherever the 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 hay servers are. They're like, yeah, it's it's basically unusable because every interaction almost requires like a round trip to the server. Or, yeah, or yeah, more, and so seconds. this sort of came on the heels of of the of the conversation that you were referring to at the start of this um, this bit about um, about a blog post written by Tom Macright. Yeah, um, suggesting that. Like the modern front end development has completely gone off the rails, um, and you know he said a lot of very true things. But the the overall conclusion that like maybe the the great JavaScript experiment has run its course and we should put our toys away and and start building apps like grown ups. Like I I just find 
this line of thinking to be um, to be very misguided, even if it does contain uh, a, a lot of truth and a lot of things that we do, like those of us who are JavaScript forward, do need to spend time thinking about. Okay, so I think that's a good place to dig in because I think um, that is obviously like a line in the sand where people like exist on one or the other very often. And a lot of people will say like, look, we've been trying to do this JavaScript stuff. Um, we just keep running into problem after problem. Yeah, we feel like we're chipping away at this mountain, but like, it, are we ever really going to get through to the other side? Or is it inevitable that we just have to like pull the eject seat and just go back to how things were working before? And some people want to just say, get me the fuck out of here. I want to go back to rails. And other people are like, I know we're only another another six feet and we're going to get through to the other side. I, I, I promise. And it sounds like you're in the cheap, keep chipping away camp. So um there's a lot of things we could dig into there. I guess like maybe an interesting place to start would be like, what do you see as kind of like the big problems that are, are still left to solve? And what is your, how do you hope that we're going to solve them? Like what, what are you optimistic about? What are you paying close attention to? And what problems do you want us to figure out how to solve in this sort of modern web world? Uh, so the, the, the big obvious one is just the size of, applications like the amount of JavaScript that gets served to the browser typically is um, is, is, is pretty high um, even even frameworks that sort of claim to be you know air quotes blazing fast like Gatsby for example like it, it ships an astonishing amount of JavaScript to your web browser for what is essentially a static site and so like you know a, a, an engineer looking at that especially if they're not on the JavaScript hype train, they're going to look at that and think, what, like, what are you people doing? This is lunacy. And so we do need to get a grip of our bundle sizes. That's, like, that's why I spent a lot of time a few years ago working on Rollup, because that was like, a way that we could try and start to minimize some of the, some of the effects of when you have the, like, these deep dependency graphs and, and how that translates into fat bundles. Um, but it's also why I'm working on Svelte. Um, it began as, an, as a way of trying to ship as little JavaScript to the client as possible back when I was, um, I was building these applications at The Guardian a few years ago. Um, so that, I think, is, is number, like there are just, there's a lot of pollution that, that, you get from, um, that you get from modern web frameworks that is a little unfortunate. The other thing that people complain about is just the, the amount of, of DIY that's involved. Mm. Um, so I think like, let's dig into the these... bundle size thing first. Cause I think otherwise okay, we're going to yeah. like, we're going to let go of it. Cause I do have some questions for you about that. So my experience or like my, what I see anyways, is when uh, kind of JavaScript focused tooling tries to solve this problem, it ends up introducing another problem, which is that you do all this code splitting and all this stuff and um, now you're just back to round trips to the server all the time to get stuff uh, for the next page, which there's like a tipping point where that just becomes like what we were doing before in terms of the speed of things. Like you have this latency problem again. Like, yes, you can serve a lot of this stuff from like edge CDNs, which is like a, a big improvement over having like a centralized server in US East and someone in Australia having to deal with that. But there's still data that needs to come from some centralized database probably unless like you're using like 
some bleeding edge database technology that's able to be distributed but comes with all its own trade-offs um svelte seems like it takes like a little bit of a different approach in some sense where like i don't know much about like the svelte code splitting story but it does seem like in general you're just focused on like just shipping as little javascript as possible so even if you did have to ship it in one giant bundle at least it's the smallest one giant bundle out of all like the possible one giant bundles that could exist so i guess (laughs) i'm curious like what your stance is there like do you do you think that that trade-off is like required do you think there's a way to send as little code as possible to the client without having to like make these round trips back and forth every time you need stuff that you didn't already get in the first initial kind of download because when you compare it to like a native app experience you download a 60 megabyte app or whatever and uh now you have it all and yeah there was a little bit of an upfront cost but you never have to pay that again whereas if you just like getting these another 50 kilobytes here and there all the time like what's the bigger evil you know i don't know yeah there's well there's a couple of things there so the first one is once you've got the chunk you've got the chunk so if you navigate from index view to detail view and then back to index view and then to another detail view like you only need to get the index bundle and the detail bundle yeah once um you don't need to do that every single time um that so that does as tom mackwright pointed out introduce another problem which is that like maybe the version of the app changed while you were while your session yeah. was ongoing and like we we haven't really developed good solutions to that but it's it's a little bit of a niche problem because it doesn't it's not a problem uh for for most sessions um but even then like if there are if there are views that you haven't yet encountered and you want to navigate to those at some point in the future you can preload the code for those using this pattern there's a there's a thing called the the purple pattern which i'm going to google what the what the letters of that stand for um the purple pattern for progressive web applications so this is something that google people have, have written a lot about so it stands for push critical resources for the initial url route render the initial route pre-cache remaining routes and then lazy load and create remaining routes on demand so what they're basically saying is that like you load everything that you need for the first few up front immediately get that up and running and then when you have some some slack in the system uh you can start fetching the rest of the application in the background yeah uh and if you combine that with a service worker that is caching these assets locally then y- you can effectively install an application for offline use uh without without a lot of work and so you and can you, trust you that can render to, it incrementally like instead of having instead of like a something you get from the app store where you can't do anything with it until the whole thing is done here it's like what, what's the fastest that we can show you the thing that you requested and then fetch exactly. everything else in the no background. matter what the entry point is it's, it's not even like you you just get the initial view first and then like maybe you get the detailed views later it's like if you come uh, via a deep link to a specific part of the application then you see that instantly and then you start lazily loading the rest and that's the real advantage of this pattern where you contrast that with the traditional approach where you have to go to the server every single time because the client isn't smart enough to do its own rendering and then you you don't get any of that benefit and offline support and slow network support becomes significantly harder so isn't offline support easier though if you just download the whole bundle at the beginning <laughs> you know what i mean like it is, it is. Um, and, you know, I think because we sort of fetishize techniques like code splitting so much, a lot of people probably don't don't 
think in those terms and I'm guilty of this too like if your bundle if your complete application is you know 50 kilobytes or 100 kilobytes then just load the whole thing in one go sure it doesn't make sense to add all this ceremony um, but I you know if you're building a non-trivial application that has uh, a bunch of different views and is potentially going to grow over time then if you can use techniques like code splitting then you're future proofing yourself yeah, uh, in, in a way that the the giant monolithic bundle will not. So with like um, Sapper, which is like the Svelte, uh, f- you know, application framework, um, what sort of stuff do you do in this category of problem? You know what I mean? To kind of solve it the best you can with the the ideas that we currently have. Like, do you do uh, so splitting is, by default? Do you do any, like, sort of preloading of, of stuff? Or do you have ideas about stuff like that? Like, what direction, I guess, do you see it kind of going in? Yeah, so big caveat first up. Sapper is not yet a 1.0 project. It's, sure, it's yeah. still slightly experimental. People are using it in production um, and more power to them. But it's, like, a lot of these ideas are still, like, areas of, of exploration. Um, yeah, but and it that's does a fine. Lot. I'm, not, I'm not trying to suggest that, like, yeah. okay, well, you say that uh, things should be this way, so you better be able to demonstrate that with your own <laughs> projects or whatever. I'm more just, like, curious about, like, let's use this real example of a thing and talk about some of the things, some of the things that you're already doing and some things that you want to do. And uh, I think that just kind of gives us an interesting anchor for kind of the discussion. So, so I can, I can talk through this, through the lens of, of a user hitting the page. If you hit uh, a page of a SAP application, then you will get some server rendered HTML um, immediately. And you will also get some JavaScript that controls the page that you've landed on. Um, that JavaScript will, will boot, and at that point, you will have a client-side router, which gives you the instant page navigation experience that, that, that doesn't involve a page reload. In the background, it will be installing a service worker that then goes off and fetches the code for all of the other views of your application. Um, and at the end of that, the service worker will be like fully ready and installed, and so you then have an offline supported application um, where you, you can navigate to the different parts of your app, assuming that there are no further data dependencies that require the network, and you can do that com- completely offline. So at that point, you don't need to go back to the server. Cool. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of about about the size of it. It's it's a it's a way of getting the best of both worlds. You get the server rendered HTML, which means that you get the fastest possible like initial paint mm-hmm. with content. But you also get the the slick um, client side navigation, and because of how it's how it's structured, it's really easy for Sapper to um, preload data and code that it thinks it's about to need. If you hover over a link that has been annotated with a simple attribute, then Sapper will be like, "Oh, we can we can prefetch that." Um, as soon as the mouse comes to a rest on top of a link, it'll go and fetch the code and then once it's got the code it will look at the component and see what data would the user need if they were to click on this link and it will go and fetch that and typically it's able to do that you know about 200 to 400 milliseconds before the user actually clicks Mm, yeah that's cool Um, and so it makes the navigation seem instant even if it does need to go back to the server Um, the same is true on mobile like if if you tap a link uh, normally the click doesn't register until you lift your finger off and it says, okay, that, that was a click. But we can say, if you've 
if you've put your mouse down on a link, then there's a pretty good chance that you're going to click it. Yeah, that you're going to let uh, go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like maybe, maybe you're about to scroll instead, and so maybe that request will be sure. wasted. But most of the time, it's probably going to be a navigation. So you can start to do all of these things without the user of, of the framework needing to think about it. It's all yeah. kind of automatic. How does the server stuff work with Svelte and Sapper? Are you running like a node server that's rendering things like on demand when you hit the server to fetch that page? Or are you doing stuff like kind of like Next kind of does lately where they do a lot of like pre-generation of things? There are two modes. Uh, the, the default mode is it is a node server. Yeah. Um, so the, the Svelte site itself is a Sapper app running in Google Cloud Run. Um, and it's like it quite closely resembles an Express app or something like that that people yeah. are quite familiar with. But there is a large class of, of sites that don't need to have a server because every page is going to look the same for every user. If you don't have any kind of authentication and like it's just, I don't know, a blog site, then you're going to get the same HTML for, for user A as, as the same HTML for user B and so on. So you can pre-render that. And so we have this mode called export, which is very similar to Next. Cool. Um, Sapper export will, it will create the node server, um, boot it up, and then it will crawl your site. It will follow all of the links from the root and everything that it finds, it will write that out as HTML files. And then you can deploy that on any static file server yeah. anyway, like GitHub pages, Netify, all of those things. Awesome. What cool. Next does in addition, which is really interesting, is, is they can have like a hybrid mode where some roots of your app are, um, are are served by a, a cloud function, but some are just static pre-rendered yeah. files. Um, and we're not yet that sophisticated, but I think that's a pretty promising direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool for sure. That's a really cool feature. Um, so we started talking a little bit before I cut you off about like your next kind of uh, grievance with the modern web, I guess, that you want to, mm. to work towards fixing, which yeah. is kind of the DIY nature of everything. Yeah, I, I totally relate to this. Um, I, anyone who's ever dealt with a build config understands that it's not fun. And the idea that you have to understand how all of the different parts of an application interrelate, um, it, it, it is really off-putting, especially if you come from an ecosystem where a lot of the decisions have already been made for you and you just need to kind of follow the happy path, which yeah. is, is certainly true in like the Rails world, for example. Um, and and I, I, I think that that is, it's true and I relate to it, but it's also like a temporary thing. It's just growing pains, right? Because we, we've been living through this Cambrian explosion of techniques and ideas in the JavaScript world and we're starting to get to a phase now where a lot of these concepts are sort of being collapsed. All of these layers are being collapsed into one. And Next is a great example of this. Next allows you to build uh, a server-rendered React app um, without having to think about how you implement code splitting and how you configure Webpack and, and all of these things. And I think we're going to see more, more ideas like that. Uh, and that problem will just kind of solve itself given enough time uh, and enough eyes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Sapper is also an experiment in that direction of, of sort of saying like, this is how we think that you should structure an application and you don't need to, you don't need to worry about how you get the server rendered HTML 
to to interact with the the client rendered application like it, it's all just taken care of you can focus on building your app um and, and we'll get there but people just need to have a little patience i guess yeah cool um i think what we haven't talked about is yeah. the advantages of of the modern web approach over the traditional approach. Yeah, I mean, and let's let's get into that. <laughs> I mean, I think we could talk for a long time. I know we have an hour scheduled here, so I'm I'm happy to go as long as you have time for. Um, but just let me know if you have a stop at any point. But uh, well, yeah. I, I will have to get to work soon. But I, I think it is important not to just not to just talk about like the downsides of the traditional server render model, but also to talk about the potential of the model that we've been working on for the last few years. And there is like one one area in particular that I I feel like is is underexplored and maybe underappreciated, and that is uh, page transitions. Um, this is a really good example of something that is extremely hard to do with the old web mindset of each page is a is a discrete experience, and you know you click on a link and it takes you to a new page, and like you you basically refresh the entire browsing context. Um, that is not how things work in the real world. Uh, we, we have this idea of sort of, you know, objects persisting over time and them having spatial relationships with one another. And all of these things, all of these, these ways in which our brain has sort of evolved to model the world aren't reflected in how we build applications on the web. They are reflected a little bit more in how we build native applications. Like when you navigate your way through a well-built iPhone application, it doesn't feel like you're just sort of doing this uh, 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 like discrete moment-to-moment jumping from yeah. from one place to another with no journey between them. It feels like but, you kind of know um, where things are when they're like not it, it, on your exactly. phone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so when I look at like the best user interface design outside the web, I see so many great ideas that I wish we were stealing from more heavily and and like a large part of the reason that we're not doing that is because of, of the web's legacy and modern front-end frameworks can get us to a place where navigating around an application like moving between uh, you know up and down a hierarchy and between siblings in that hierarchy um, feels a lot more like exploring a space or exploring an object which is so much more um potentially uh like useful and and delightful than jumping between pages yeah and we just can't get there with with a legacy stack yeah i i think that's totally true i also feel like like how close are we to even being able to pull that off? Especially when you start talking about code splitting and stuff again. Like how you know if you don't have the data for this thing that's supposed to swipe in from the side. Like I guess you just have to be really smart about preloading every possible component you could interact with from this uh, page. You know what I mean? Like it sounds challenging, which I guess is the reason why we don't have like some really obvious, easy way to do it yet. Like what? What yeah, do you kind of see is, the challenges being in kind of getting there? Well, so to, to answer the first point, this is why frameworks can be so valuable because they can, like, people can think deeply about how these problems are best sort of modeled and then solve them once and then everyone gets that solution mm-hmm. instead of it being a sort of bespoke thing that every every application developer has to figure out by themselves for their specific use case. Um, so 
Uh, I, I think a good example of of where pace transitions are really valuable is navigating between siblings. Like say you, I don't know, maybe you have like a photo viewer app and you want to navigate from one photo to the next photo. Yeah. Um, y- you can you can do that because you ha- you already have all of the code and like you've probably preloaded some data for, for the next for the next photo. Yeah. Um, and, and so like you, it's, it's a really easy and obvious way to introduce uh, a more natural transition than just reloading the page, for example. Um, it does get a little bit trickier when you don't have the code and you don't have the data for the next view. But, you know, React is thinking deeply about this problem with concurrent mode. They're going to introduce a mode where you can delay rendering until you have everything for the next view. And that's called suspense. And it remains to be seen how that will work in practice. Yeah. Like I, I have I have some skepticism about about concurrent mode, but you know people are actively thinking about how to solve these problems, and it is going to be difficult, but it is possible. And I prefer difficult but possible over we shouldn't even try because yeah. it just doesn't fit within the model that we've constrained ourselves with. Yeah. What are some of the other advantages? I guess like other kind of things that should be drawing people to be building. Um, tool or applications using the sort of modern web approach other than like the page transition experience is there any other like specific things that kind of like are things you feel really strongly about uh so the another underexplored avenue i think is rendering inside service workers um which is a a thing that you you sort of need a a, a modern web stack to do Mm -hmm. Um, service workers generally, I think, are probably a little bit underused, partly because they're so difficult to use. Um, so I, I guess there's, there's, there's stuff like that. In general, I just feel like the platform gives us so much. And by, by not bothering to use the, like one of the biggest planks of that platform to its fullest extent, by which I mean JavaScript, then, um, you know, you, you end up like kind of restricting the things that you're able to build. And we, we, you know, we need to, we need to use the platform. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I think, um, one of the things that I don't think a lot of people recognize is that like the web is such an amazing platform for like the universal deployment of software. You know what I mean? Like we think of it as like a, place to view websites or whatever but um if you think of like the browser as just like an operating system it's it's one that if you build something for it anyone can use it you know what i mean like um people make the argument a lot of the time that like oh like your website doesn't work without javascript you should use like progressive enhancement or whatever which i think is a little silly in a a lot of ways like if you're trying to build software then you need a programming language to write the software and i'm sorry you know what i mean um but i think like the thing that people don't recognize a lot of the time is that like the alternative to me like building a website that relies on javascript is not to build a website that doesn't rely on javascript it's to build an application that only runs on mac sorry you know what i mean because i need a programming right. language so i guess i'll write it in swift instead and now if you're on windows you don't get to use my software at all um I don't know. I think that's like a, a line of thinking that's not obvious to people sometimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm a webhead, so you know you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I would push back a little bit yeah. on the progressive enhancement thing. I think there are a lot of situations where 
you, you don't like, you know, every user is a no JavaScript user until their JavaScript loads. Yeah. And, you know, there are certainly situations like I live in New York City when there isn't a pandemic on, I use a subway a lot. Yep. And so it's not uncommon for me to start loading a page at a station and then I go into the tunnel and it like the, the request for the JavaScript craps out. I, mm. I want to still be able to see the content. Yeah. Um, and so I, 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 I think that even though it's very true that there are a lot of applications that you simply do need JavaScript for, I think as a default, we should be building progressively enhanceable, robust applications that can survive without JavaScript, at least to the extent that people are able to, to, to view a page and understand what's on it. Yeah. I had one more topic for you if you have time, which is um, mm. something I've thought about a lot in the past is like if we're trying to build stuff for the web that are very sort of like JavaScript centric applications, should we be thinking about those conceptually the same way we think about native apps in terms of like how they communicate with the outside world and what expectations we should have on on how they should work? Or does it make more sense to think of it as sort of a blend between like a website and a native application? Because, you know, if you're building like a native app, you have a lot of constraints that are different in terms of like eventual consistency of like local data being synchronized with server data and, and stuff like that, that most people don't think about as much when they're building um, web applications. It's just like we get the data from the server. We treat the server as a source of truth. Like people do like optimistic UI and stuff like that, but definitely not to the same degree that people do it in like native desktop applications that are expected to just completely work without being connected to the internet at all, like Todoist. You know, I can like interact with it as much as I want with no network. And the idea is as long as I haven't done anything really insane with it, that like when I get connected to the network, like everything is going to make sense still and get synchronized. Um, Do you have strong opinions on like how far we should be pushing our mental model of like, web applications in that direction versus having some expectation of the network being available, you know? I see no reason in principle that, that web apps can't be com- have complete feature parity with native apps. Um, like yes, obviously there, there are things that are missing. There's, there's APIs that the web doesn't yet have. And, you know, G- Google are, are trying to push forward with a lot of APIs. There's this thing called Project Fugu, which adds a whole bunch of new capabilities to the platform and Apple have come around and said, no, nah, we're not going to implement those because we have some slightly nebulous concerns about privacy that uh, may be a little bit inconsistent mm-hmm. with some of the features that they've already implemented. Sure. Separate conversation. Um, you know, if, if, if the web can... Uh, <laughs> my, my phone started talking about Google's project Fugu. <laughs> then <laughs> just, it just delivered me a whole bunch of search results while I was trying to have that conversation. Um, so uh, there are some missing APIs that we're slowly trying to plug. Um, but when we do, I, I don't see any fundamental reason why we can't have web apps that, that are just as capable as, as, as native apps. The, the thing that we need to really solve before we get there is we need offline first to be as prevalent as, you know, mobile first thinking, for example. Yeah. At the moment, offline support is is a bit of a like if you have time at the end, like maybe we'll chuck in a chuck in a service yeah, worker. I feel like I don't have, know how you can build it that support, way. I feel like it has to be like most people aren't building like offline first applications. Yeah. 
Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think we had some network issues there, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, I if if that happens, if 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 people start um, building offline first, you know, offline first frameworks, particularly that makes it very straightforward to build offline first applications, then the expectations might well shift. Do you think that's like? the way we should be thinking about things or do you think that it depends on the application like is offline first like we are making a mistake by not building things that way and that's how we should be thinking or is it just like yeah that's something that you can do if like that makes sense for your app obviously it's got to be on a case-by-case basis like we're having a conversation on a on uh on a video chat web app sure um it doesn't make sense for that to be (laughs) offline first but there are a lot of things um, like creativity apps mm-hmm. and a, a subset of productivity apps that absolutely make sense to be offline first. Yeah, um, we've just got to provide app makers with the tools to to do that without tearing the hair out. Yeah, do you think it's an app like GitHub could be offline first, like the GitHub website? This is just a random thing that just popped into my head you know as an example of like what totally. we think of as like a traditional Rails app. So, what would like the offline first version of GitHub look like? Uh, so I, it, it would obviously need to have, um, access to a subset of your file system. Um, but you could, you could basically implement the, the GitHub desktop client as, as a web app, I think. Yeah. Um, it would probably need to have, like, it would need to have issues and pull requests, um, cached locally somehow. Um, the amount of data that involves might start to become prohibitive at, at a certain point, but um, that's why you sync with the server when you can. Yeah. Do you think um, it would for be a lot like, of day-to-day tasks that I'm trying to do with GitHub? Then offline first would make yeah. a ton of sense. I guess there's a lot of things that just can't work. Like, for example, I was just looking for the that Flappy Bird Phoenix Live View thing. Like, I'm not going to be able to find that if I'm offline unless GitHub has downloaded its entire <laughs> every repository right. on the whole database into my phone, which doesn't make sense. But I guess there's there could be a world where it's like. Just like with the Netflix app, you can say like download this so I can like watch it when I'm offline. I could say like, well, here's like my starred repositories. Like keep these like synchronized in the background so that I can still go and like read the issues if I'm uh, offline. And I know that they're like fairly recent and not just like recent the last time I actually opened it, but like kept up. Yeah. Just like how Todoist is still syncing stuff with my phone without me opening it and refreshing it or whatever, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like the, the GitHub desktop client and how you could merge the features of GitHub.com with that client mm-hmm. um, if you had a, an offline first web app. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any, I mean, you were right that we probably talked a little bit about the uh, about the the challenges ahead and not the um, not what's exciting <laughs> or, or what hmm. should be pulling people to build things this way, but like more than uh, maybe we plan to. But is there anything else that you think would be like, important points or things that we haven't touched on at all that you really want to make sure uh, we talk about it a little bit before we start wrapping up? So, so someone um, in a response to my thread about, hey, sort of said, look, all this is is that the server people don't ever want to hear about Webpack and the client people don't ever want to hear about AWS. And that's that's the full extent of this cultural disagreement is that like you have these people in different camps and they just don't care to learn the esoteric technologies of the other camp. 
And it, it struck me that like we're getting to a point where no one needs to hear about AWS because yeah. a lot of this stuff is being abstracted behind really user-friendly services. Um, I, I, the cost of serverless compute is dropping precipitately. Um, we're starting to see more options for distributed data storage and all of these things that make it such that I, as a front-end developer, can build a full-stack application yeah. using best-of-breed technologies, and it's pretty cheap. Yeah. Like in a lot of cases, I can get buy on a free tier with a lot of these things. If I'm building a product, then you know I'm I'm paying cents for for what previously would have required me to hire someone to implement. Sure. Uh, and so that side of things is going to vanish. That all those layers of complexity are going to collapse a lot faster than than the reverse story. So the the client people are becoming full stack people faster than the server people can become full stack people. So if you want to in, like know where to invest your time and thought, then it's clearly on on the, the area the, the that's sort of closer the to the stuff that has to be centric. bespoke, right? Like like the application yeah. that I'm building that people are going to experience, that that is never going to be exactly the same as any other application. Like that's the part that's guaranteed to need to be custom. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting like even when you look at something like Heroku, like Heroku has been enabling people to deploy full stack applications without having to be like a operations person for, you know, a decade or or more yeah. at this point. Um, I've always kind of felt like the distinction between like back end and front end development was kind of, I don't know, um, people look at it in different ways, right? Like some people think like, to be a full stack developer, you need to be writing your own Ansible scripts and doing whatever. But like I identify as a full stack developer just because I have to write SQL queries to build a right. full product. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. I, if I can write the code necessary to build something from scratch and put it on the internet and have people use it and have it work for people, then, you know, that seems like enough to kind of meet um, that description. And I definitely agree that like, um, you know, if you are a front-end developer who writes code to talk to an API, there's no reason you can't write code that talks to Postgres. It's the same thing, you know? Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Well, cool, man. I think um, I think we've been going for quite a while now, so probably be a good time to, to wrap it up. Maybe we can uh, do, do another discussion one day down the road. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me uh, about this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on. really fun to dive into it. What's the best place for people yeah. to sort of keep up with like some of the work that you're doing, keep up with Svelte, keep up with Sapper and all that sort of stuff? So if people are interested in Svelte, then uh, the URL is nice and easy to remember, svelte.dev. Um, we have a site for Sapper as well, sapper.svelte.dev. Um, we have a Twitter account, twitter.com slash sveltejs. Um, you can sort of find out everything you want there. We have a, a friendly Discord server for people who want to like talk to other Svelte people and, and get help with their issues, which is literally just svelte.dev slash chat. Uh, and if, if people want to know what I'm up to, then I live on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash rich underscore Harris. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rich Harris about Svelte and the modern web. If you're interested in the show notes, they can be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 143. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>